When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to In My Heart, a podcast truly about all the things in my heart and finding our freedoms. I'm your host, Heather Thompson. My next guest, Fern Malice, had a vision that became New York Fashion Week at Bryant Park, better known as the Tents, that put American designers on the world map and cemented Fern Malice firmly in American fashion history. For almost two decades, the tents became a whole fashion city with Fern as its mayor. Beyond the catwalks, Fern launched her legendary conversation series, Fashion Icons with Fern Malice, at the famous 92nd Street Y, giving us an intimate look into the lives of some of the biggest names in fashion. Think Tom Ford, Valentino, Tommy Hilfiger, and she's chronicled it all into a book series, Fashion Icons 1 and 2, Fashion Lives with Fern Malice. We're going to talk all about her riveting career and intimate conversations with the industry's most talented, most successful, and legendary personalities. Fashion icon herself, Fern Malice, is in my heart. Welcome, Fern. Thank you, Heather. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Oh, it's such a treat to have you, really. I mean, when I think back on my fashion career, you're such a big part of it. And and, and so the Bright Park tents were born, right? I mean... You ran those tents for almost two decades as the executive director of the CFDA and as the senior vice president at IMG Fashion. Let's talk New York Fashion Week for a second. Okay. (laughs) So let me just say, like, the moment I think you realized that you had really put New York on the world map as, like, a fashion capital was when European designers started to choose to do the New York shows over European shows. I think it was... Versace, right, that did the first one? Uh, Johnny Versace was a pivotal moment, absolutely. And because of the magnitude of the set that he wanted, we had to let him go first. So we opened Fashion Week literally like a night before, and the whole tent was filled with every seat had one of his Medusa, you know, beautiful designs, uh, seat cushions, which I happily have four of them in my apartment still. But the show, it was it was a very special moment, but it caused a lot of consternation. A lot of the American designers were very pissed off. Like, why are we letting a European and an Italian designer kick off Fashion Week in New York? This is about us. And I really had to prove to them that we were an international city and when fashion is international and that Johnny was bringing an entire plane load of journalists from Italy. Right. That would not have necessarily been there otherwise and that we will all benefit from the amount of press that he will bring to the entire project, to the entire um, fashion week. And that's exactly what happened. Stronger together, stronger together. Mm -hmm. I love that. We met under the tents, in fact, when I was the creative director at Sean John. And, you know, for me, it was the optimum of fashion. Even though I had worked for Calvin and I had been to, you know, Italy and seen the shows, for me, I guess as an American designer myself, um, the whole glamour of it, it really did become a city in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike Europe, you know what I mean? It really was its own thing. It was like its own morphing thing. What were your, some of your favorite shows over the years? And, and how do you think New York differed from, from Europe? Well, certainly, you know, to your point, I mean, the tents became the heartbeat of the industry. And when people talk about Fashion Week in Bryant Park now, it's kind of the way they talk about Studio 54. Right. You know, you ha- if you weren't there, you, don't, you can't understand it. You had to have been there to experience what that felt like, the energy, the magic, the, the whole idea of getting in the front door, you know, yeah. and getting past security and people lined up on both sides behind, you know, police barricades, watching the fashion people come and go and the celebrities and everybody in and out. It was a real happening and it was a fashion village and a fashion community. You know, you couldn't tell from the street, just from the facade, which I was very proud of our facade in Bryant Park because every season 
we got a different illustrator artist to to do the visuals, which had some kind of theme to the season and the time of year and what was happening in the world. And behind that was this lobby with all these lounges and cafes and you know, places for people to hang out and information and sponsor booths and areas where they could get all sorts of treats and goodies. And then beyond that were four different size venues. You yeah. Know, for the smallest one for up and coming emerging designers to a midsize to, you know, a, a large and an extra large. Yeah. Know, and to uh, people know. like us at Shantan who were televising it. Yeah. This is absolutely. a revolution. You remember the beginning of that fashion show? Yeah. Absolutely. And then backstage was a whole other universe. Oh, my God. I mean, they, I remember when W was a, W Hotels was a sponsor. They they created like a little mini lounge in the backstage. And, you know, and one year they had a bed in there and you yes, know, I remember and they'd have all this food all the time. And, you know, you had to have really special VIP access to get to that backstage oh, lounge. Totally. I mean, for the, I mean, the whole culture of it, I mean, from like the making of the Pat McGraths and the, you know what I mean? Like the whole culture of the models. I mean, I mean, it really, it, for me, it was like the beginning of fashion um, for America. When you think of, I, I love you refer to them as the one name models, you know, think Cindy. Cindy, <laughs> Linda, Claudia, you know. All the Naomi. one name models. Yes, Naomi. I mean, it was just really incredible. So, you mentioned it was like Studio 54. And I, and I think, you know, it was like Studio 54. It was a time that was kind of past and was had. And I know some of your favorite shows, because we've talked about it. Bill Bloss has a moment for you. Tommy Hilfiger has special places in your heart. What do you think of fashion then and that historical moment we had in fashion today? It's very different now. But, you know, back to the point in the first question kind of that you asked me about some of my favorite moments in the tents you know I, I don't want to gloss over to Bill and Tommy because those were very special yeah. um, the Bill Blast show was his final show when he was retiring and the show was happening during Hurricane Floyd in New York and it was the worst possible weather you could ever imagine and being intense when the rain is just uh, horrendous you, you can't not be in a tent with that water leaking everywhere. No matter what, no matter how brilliant our installations were, where tents meet and, and sew up at you know, each corridor, there was water everywhere. And his guests who were the social, the superstars of New York, of, of the Upper East Side and everybody, coming in, their umbrellas were blowing away off the steps. And, you know, it took forever for people to get there and, um, and Bill was backstage with his smoking his cigarette and all the girls were there. Everybody was dressed. And he said, Fern, let's, I, I've done the collection. I'm happy with it. I see them all in the girls. Let's just stop. Let's not do the show. And I said, there's no way. We're not letting you leave this career that way. Yeah, just without just your final show. Oh People are doing everything they can to get here. The venue was pretty much full. You know, yeah. and I remember standing in the control booth and making an announcement that we're just waiting a little bit longer, everybody, you know, to send Bill off. Like, please, you know, the show's going to start later than normal because of the weather. Right. You know, and then it, then the show did start. And the backdrop was all red, white and blue lights because he was kind of the dean of American fashion. Yeah. And it was all Gershwin and Lerner and Low Music, all the great American classic songs and of course, the girls were extraordinary and it was a beautiful show, you know, and at the end, it was a standing ovation for so long and not a dry eye in the house. And that had nothing to do with the rain, you know, and it was a very beautiful, emotional moment, you know, and that was the end of his career. And uh, the end of our career at Bryant Park was Tommy's show was the last show. And at the very end, end of the show, he came out, uh, you know, which nobody expected with a microphone in hand, thanking me and Stan Herman for, you know, almost 20 years of of running that place and making yeah. fashion happen for everybody. And everybody was leaving the venue, kissing me goodbye. It felt like my bar mitzvah. I mean, everybody <laughs> was just, you know, it was, and it was, it was poignant, but it was very beautiful. And with the one named Supermodels, there was a show that I'll never forget that Todd Oldham did. Yeah. And I worked for him. <laughs> Todd's shows were always fabulous. So fun. And, and Great guy. And I remember it was a season when the press was giving us a lot of grief about 
you know, there's too many celebrities at the shows, you know, it's taking away the attention. We can't, you know, we can't, we're in the front row. We can't see anything. It's all the celebrities. And and then it's about all the models. And then where are the models? And there are no, there are no good models this season. No, where are the superstars? Where are the good models? And, you know, and people, the press, as you know, can be pretty vicious. And I remember Todd's show was kind of the middle of the week. And all of a sudden the, the proscenium opened, his set, the doors slid open and out came literally like Naomi, Cindy, Linda, Claudia, you know, um, every major girl in the world that was working at that time. And the place went ballistic. Crazy. And I, and I remember speaking to press saying, you want models? We got models. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it was just incredible. That's amazing. You know, the, the model story that I just ha- brings comes to mind immediately after that was um, your recollection of the Sean John shows. And t- you tell the story, just tell a little story of Sean John, because I know that that is a memory for you. Oh, my gosh. When Sean, I mean, he was he was a huge star, you know, and the fact that he even had a collection and put all that together was admirable. And people were very curious, like, is this for real? What is what is this guy doing? And uh, we were thrilled to be able to present his show in the, in the big tent. Yeah. And it was a nighttime show and the place was packed. It was a killer ticket to get, you know, an invitation to be there. And I remember that just even the set, when you came in the runway had huge round runway, like almost airplane runway lights on the ground that were turning and swirling and making incredible light effects in the space. The entire back wall, where they came out was a video screen. All LED. Yeah. All LED with, you know, like a rock beat of his music and, and visuals that just didn't stop New York scenes and all sorts of stuff going on. It was, I mean, just that was already entertainment enough. (laughs) And then the show started and these models came out. They were all these men and they were the hunkiest men you've ever seen you know, I don't know how many of them were models or real people. Or that was a big perk of my job is I got to pick all those guys. I can't even imagine what that cozy was like. I have stories. And, and they were all, I mean, for the most part, the part of what I remember the most was they were wearing incredible fur coats. And this is before everybody was anti-fur. Right. And, and, and fur coats in gorgeous colors, yes. you know, bright primary colors and and jackets with fur and bare chested, yes, dripping with diamonds, yes, <laughs> diamonds around their necks and necklaces, and oh, the swagger was yes. unbelievable. The place went crazy, and it I re- I remember uh, an industry legend who was always in the front row, Cal Rutenstein, who used to be the fashion director of Bloomingdale's, you know, and he he was way ahead of his time wearing you know sweatpants and and like Adidas and sneakers all the time because he was at you know, a large man. And, and I remember him going, going nuts, going nuts, going nuts. It was, it was a, it was a real moment. It was a real moment. He came, he became a very big force in my fashion career. And, you know, from those times that we kind of changed fashion history, we called it a revolution. And I remember, you know, telling the models to engage with the audience and people going like, you can't do that. And we really love to break the rules. And, you know, that was the beginning of black excellence really for Puffy and that whole campaign. And we did so much good work together, but we want to talk about you because you have had a rock star career in fashion. And I just want to go over just for a second some of your early highlights, not to gloss over anything at all. Um, I wanted to talk about your work in AIDS and fashion. And, you know, I'm just going to give them a a little bit of a background and I want you to share some of the stories, but you've been in fashion from your childhood. Your dad was in the garment center and that was when the the term garmento was an affectionate term. And you still think of it affectionately as do I. So you started kind of like, you know, under your your uh, dad's kind of watch and watching what he did. And then you jumped into Mademoiselle as a career, but then you went into the CFDA. So I want to talk a little bit about your childhood in fashion and then your CFDA and how you got that job. And I think Oscar de Lorenzo, there's a story about him with that. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, I did kind of grow up in the industry. My dad was a salesman for women's accessories and scarves. So growing up, I knew how to tie a scarf. 8,000 ways and had the hugest scarf collection. 
That is a and skill. It is. In those days, I could have had, you know, a TikTok or some a tutorial on social media and made a fortune. <laughs> way, way too early. Yeah. Um, and my dad's two brothers were also in the industry, one in sportswear and one in textiles. So, I mean, I knew all the buildings on 7th Avenue and Broadway and, you know, oh, who's in that building? Who's in that building? 1407, 1412, you know, 1384 yeah. Broadway, you know, all of them. Iconic all, buildings. We've all worked. I worked in all, all of those, I think. And each building had its own kind of personality and identity. And I'd go to work with him every chance I could when I was, you know, at, in school, if a day off or a holiday long before Gloria Steinem coined Take Your Daughter to Work Days. Right. And I learned a lot just by being there and watching him interact with the fashion directors of the department stores that he were his accounts, going to lunch with him and having a grown-up meal with this woman who's like a big shot in a store. And I, I saw that this was a career that women could excel in and were respected in. And so that was a big part of my upbringing. And I, in I'm high glad school, you mentioned that point. That's really important. As a female, you felt like this is a place that you could really excel and belong. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities or pockets maybe that you saw in that, in those days. Right. And, and as you said, those garmentos, I mean, it was a, it was a family on seventh Avenue and Broadway. They all knew each other on the streets. Everybody talked to each other. All the guys were telling jokes, which, you know, every salesman has the best jokes and, <laughs> And and all the people worked in the showrooms and there was a real camaraderie and there was a hustle and bustle with all the carts, with the textiles, the rolls of fabric and the clothing being manufactured, put in trucks. Now it's all offshore and you don't see any of that. Yeah, you know, and it really was an exciting place. And then when I was in high school, I won the fashion design award in my school at Madison High School, James Madison in Brooklyn, a school which I have to say Chuck Schumer went to, Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to. You know, also and so did my Debbie. mom. And oh. so did my and Heather Thompson's mother. Emily went to James Madison High School. You were it's also best dressed, I have to add, because I didn't know that about you. You were voted best dressed. I won best dressed, which was, I guess, the beginning of my career of sorts. And in college, I joined the Mademoiselle College Board, which was a program where they were working with college students around the country to get their opinions on products and almost as a... Um, focus group of sorts right. for their sure. advertisers primarily. And we'd get envelopes at school with product and questionnaires. And, and then if you wanted to move up the ladder in this contest or competition and college board, you had, to you had to do a project, whether it was poetry or writing or photography or something visual or something fashion related, all the different disciplines that Mademoiselle magazine was known for. And it was the best magazine at that time. It was, I, yes, it was wildly popular. Unbelievable talent that came out of that magazine. And I did a project because I was studying graphics and fine arts because I thought that at least I can get a career in when I get out of college, not fine arts, painting and sculpture would not you know, make any money for me. Right. And anyway, I was one of the 20 people around the country, 20 students that was selected to be a Mademoiselle guest editor. And that, that was the big, you know, the big Change, range. The, the big circus. switch I mean, that, that you knew. An extraordinary thing to win, you know, and it was a legendary contest. Um, Allie McGraw was a guest editor, Betty, Bet, um, Betsy Johnson, Joan Didion, Sylvia Plath, um, Peggy Noonan, all sorts of incredible women. And I did that for the month of June. They brought you to New York, stayed at the Barbizon Hotel, which for me, I mean, was it was fun staying in the Barbizon, but New York was home. But yeah. for 18, 18 of the other 20, you know, this was their first trip to New York. And we were wined and dined and entertained. And it was it was a magical month. And then I went to Europe after that, which was what everybody did when they graduated from college. Right. With a rail pass and luggage that you couldn't even carry. Right, right, right. What year are we talking, Fern? We're talking 1969. Oh, my God. What an exciting time. And no, nobody had wheels on luggage then. <laughs> nobody had wheels on luggage. And let me ask you, in those times and these all these fond memories, like how were you finding coming up in the fashion industry as a female during those times? Um, I think it was... You know, when, well, like when I came back from Europe and I was, uh, I was being called by Mademoiselle for a full-time job and I went there, you felt fine because the magazines had 
prim- so many women employees. Right, it was right, primar- yes. primarily women. And Condé Nast was at that time a wonderful place to work. I mean, but all the leadership, magazines. Leadership positions is what changed because you moved into a leadership position as a female and that was rare. So while there were a lot of females at magazines and even at fashion companies, the leadership teams were generally males, but you, you crashed through that ceiling. Tell me a little bit about about that. I guess I was breaking it a little bit, you know, tapping it all the time. Yeah. Um, It was, I loved my job at Mademoiselle. I was in the merchandising department and first I was in the college competitions, which is the, 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 office that went out and recruited and got new the guest editors that I was, you know, that I had been. Um, so at 23 or so, I mean, I was traveling to every campus in America, you know, and I, I was not even old enough to rent a car and I'd have to somehow do that in these cities um, <laughs> to get to these places. But it was a terrible time then because it was anti-war, Vietnam War, and mm-hmm. the last thing people wanted on campus is like a fashion magazine person. Right. You know, is the burning bras, not selling them. Right, right. And, and so I then shifted into the merchandising and we were doing promotional events in every department store in the country. And that was extraordinary. And, and that's when every department store and every city and state had its own branded store. Years right. later, Macy's bought them all. Now they're all called Macy's. Right. In all the cities, there was like, who, there were Gimbel's and Marshall Fields and Macy's. And, there, and, and Higby's and right. Meyer and Grace and, I'm you know, and Burdine's and, yeah, I mean, wonderful stores in, yes. in each of those cities. That's a big change. In and that was a big deal for me. And then I find, and then I did leave because I had a boss who was a tough woman and she was feeling you know, that I was being competitive with her and I knew that she was not going to give me the next break. And I said, it's time for me to move on. And I did. And, you know, and I moved on a couple of times in my life. Um, I worked in a showroom on seventh Avenue, which I hated. Yeah. That's a big challenge that women face in, in uh, coming up with other women. And, and I think we saw, I definitely saw it in the fashion industry where, Unfortunately, there was a time, and that's changing, that w- women were conditioned to push another woman down in order to get ahead. And, you know, we see that when people are kind of strung out and wrung out, you know, it's got to be me. It's survival, right? right. But that was an interesting time uh, in fashion when I would have a woman in a leadership role, and then I would look to leadership and encouragement from her. And in fact, I would get, you know, quite the reverse. I want to move into the CFDA only because you wore so many, you know, you wore so many hats on your road to the CFDA, but you, you know, as you were talking, the fashion director of Gimbel's East, you were the International Design Center of New York, and eventually you even ran your own PR firm. But I want to talk about the opportunity uh, of the CFDA, because for me, it was such a pivotal role that you played in fashion history as a female in fashion and a powerhouse for it. I'm going to call you that because as much as you were tapping on the glass ceiling, you really didn't take no for an answer in certain cases, even when you were up against great odds. So tell us a little bit about your the opportunity of the CFDA and how it led, how you led to getting that. Um, I I was doing some freelance PR working in an office with uh, Mary Loving and Harriet Weintraub, and the CFDA had was producing its first big AIDS benefit called Seventh on Sale, yeah. and it was a long time coming for a CFDA to really grab that cause of AIDS and do something massive to raise money and awareness. And I had been very involved with DIFA, the Design Industries Foundation Fighting AIDS, as a founding board member. And we were doing lots of events because that was a horrifying time in our lives where, you know, you'd go to three memorial services a week. Everybody um, in fashion was dying. Everybody. Fashion was just devastated. Yes. And so when CFDA did that event, the team I was in the office was with was doing pro bono PR for them. Um, I bought a ticket to the dessert party because that's all I could afford. And it was it was an eye opener. Robert Isabel designed the armory on 26th Street in Lexington into this gorgeous space with every designer had a beautiful booth selling their clothes at wholesale prices and below. They were each there working with the customers. And um, Anna Winter had been Vogue had done the opening night party, you know, which was, uh, you know, amazing. And then the after party is when I got it got in there. 
And that was a four day event that raised many, many, many millions of dollars. You know, you bought a ticket to shop for two hours and then you had to get online and check out. And there were lines around the armory all weekend. Yeah. I mean, and I still know people who still talk about what they bought at seventh on sale. Yeah. Because it was those amazing buys that you could get. Um, And after that, the CFDA, Carolyn Rome was the president. And um, there was a man named Robert Raymond, who I knew from the interior design world, who was executive director. He was an old friend of Perry Ellis's and Perry had appointed him. And the, the organization was completely depleted. I mean, they were, they, they couldn't even rise from the success of seventh on sale. And the office was a tiny, small office. Carolyn resigned after that. Yeah. And Robert's contract was not renewed. And though, so they put out a search looking for a new executive director. And I saw that because I read women's wear every day. Yeah. You know, I was always talking about what the CFD was doing and that they had put this search out there. And they ultimately saw, I don't know, hundreds of, they got hundreds of resumes and they met, I don't know, 40 or 50 people. And I said to the gals in the office, Mary, I said, maybe I should go up for that job. And they all looked at me and said, ding, oh my God, you'd be perfect for that. And so I said, who do I call? How do I, what do I do? She's, then they said, well, call Donna Karen. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to call Donna Karen. Like she's going to take my call. And then they said, okay, send a resume to Stan Herman and Monica Tilly with the search committee. I did that on a Friday. On Monday, I got a call and said, how quickly can we meet you? Um, I literally went there, I think two days later. They had already they had already picked their five finalists that they were ready to make a decision on. And I became literally the sixth. Wow. And it was, and when I met Stan at this meeting, he said to me, I said to him, you know, I met you a long time ago. He said, looked at me and I said, when I was a Mademoiselle guest editor, you were the designer that my group in the, in the four or five of us went to interview and meet. And he's, he was Mr. Mort at the time. And, and he looked at me, he said, oh, yes, I remember. I said, no, you don't. But that's <laughs> okay. You know, and uh, we've ultimately now, you know, BFFs, like nobody's business. But um, he remembered. I, I bet he remembered. <laughs> no, he didn't remember. He, does, he never remembered. And um, so after that first meeting with them, they sent me up for the second meeting with Calvin Klein. Bill Blass and Carolyn Rome. And I went to that meeting and they said, and I knew Calvin Klein from Fire Island parties and things. Right. You know, and Bill Blass looked like my dad. So I was kind of comfortable with him. Yeah. And they said, you know, you haven't been in fashion in 10 years. Why should we hire you? And I said, I never stopped wearing clothes. Right. And they looked at me like, good answer. And I said, I never stopped reading fashion magazines. I never stopped shopping. I said, it's in my DNA. I grew up in fashion. And, and then it was about AIDS and fundraising and because of DIFA, and that was now a new objective of the CFDA to stay on that AIDS front. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asked, I was offered the position. Then they set me up for the final, final authorization was an entire CFDA board meeting and Carolyn's showroom, a long, long table with everybody you've ever heard of in your life at the yeah table. give people like the the council of fashion designer association board looks like name some of the people that might be on the board it was like, oscar was there yes. bill was there ralph lauren was there donna karen calvin yeah you know it was mary not Ristivo, a nerve-wracking meeting at all for you mary and restivo mary <laughs> mcfadden um casper i mean this was we're talking way back 30 years ago yeah Halston um, was still alive i mean we and, were and then there was Eleanor Lampert, who had started the CFDA. Um, and it was it was an intimidating group, let me tell you. I mean, I was so stressed out just what to wear to each of these meetings and interviews. Um, but I remember with that one, I was wearing a fabulous um, Anne Klein that Louis Deloli had designed. Yeah. A beautiful jumper with a beautiful white blouse with some very soft fabric with gorgeous gold, like bean cufflinks and... Um, I felt fine, you know? Yes. And, you know, and they queried me that, you know, even though I pretty much felt like I had the job, I was challenged because, and, and by Oscar about my fundraising for DIFA right. and how could, you know, we need you to do a hundred percent of fundraising for us. If you're working for another organization on, you know, on the board of, how's that going to work? And I said, don't ask me to ever to stop 
raising money for my friends who are dying. I'll do whatever it takes. And this is not going to take away from my commitment to this position. And, you know, and after a couple of conversations, um, a funny one of Mary McFadden also about the partnership for the homeless, because I started an organization called Furnish a Future as a subtext of partnership. And she said, she asked me about that. And I said, you know, the only reason why I got involved with that was because the meeting was in your showroom and I wanted to see your showroom. <laughs> and, really and, and sitting at the meeting, I came up with all these ideas and I was the only one in the room who like stepped up to the plate and created this new, this new chapter where we had a warehouse in Brooklyn with Brooke Astor funded and yeah. homeless families when they were placed in the system would come there and get clothing and they're not clothing, furniture and furniture, tabletop yes. to yes. furnish their places. So anyway, so that the end of the meeting, they said, go out, we're going to deliberate. I came back in the room and there was a birthday cake and they all sang happy birthday to me. And it was on my birthday. And, I love that. And then, and then I, it took two weeks. I said, I needed time to, get everything in order to start. And during that time is when fashion week or market week was happening. And that's yeah. when Mark Jacobs, not, I'm sorry, Michael Kors show yeah. happened. The yes. pivotal show, the shot heard from Sarajevo. Yes. So it was at the 1991 Michael Kors show, in fact, in a New York city loft space, when the vibrations from the bass music caused an already very weak ceiling to crumble onto all those one name models we were talking about before, literally the ceiling falling on the heads of Christy and Cindy and Naomi and all the fashion editors sitting in the front row. And the next day, the headlines read, I think you said, we live for fashion. We don't want to die for it. And it set you on a mission, Fern. Yep, and and, and I mean, let's let's talk about that mission because it really is about reinvention. You know, um, I think that reinvention, we're going to get into talking about your book now, and reinvention is a theme in your book. And late in life reinvention is something that you talk about, which I really like a lot. Uh, you, you, you have a quote that says, while the rest of the world was baking sourdough, I wrote a book. And that was during the pandemic. So tell me about this, because I know that during the pandemic, you reflected on a lot and there was times in your life, like during uh, after Brian Park that you called as the coffee period where you were taking a lot of meetings. But the coffee phase of my life. I was yes. getting called after I left IMG and left Fashion Week and after the 20 years, I took time off yes. and then the phone started ringing. Can I meet you for a cup of coffee? I have an idea. I have a new project. Can I take you out for a cup of coffee? Oh, my friend said that you're the perfect person to consult in this. Can we meet for a cup of coffee? And I said, nobody was asking me out to lunch or dinner. They only wanted coffee. And it was crazy. But then it wasn't even $5 coffee yet. <laughs> right. Uh, absolutely. It was, you know, coffee shop coffee. And, um, and then eventually, then out of that time, though, and literally, which was amusing, over a cup of tea, this a new opportunity came to me. Right. And it was with Timothy Greenfield Sanders, the famous photographer and documentarian who's been a longtime pal. And he, we were down at his studio in the Lower East Side and having tea. And he said, you know, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Betsy Berg. She's an agent. She represents a lot of people speaking to her, all sorts of things. So I met Be Betsy. She invited me for lunch. So I thought that was a good start. And she said, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Susan Engel, who lives in her building, who is the head of programming and the talks at the 92nd Street Y. And I said, great. I mean, I yeah. love the 92nd Street Y. I'm a New yeah. Yorker. I would go up there for all these unbelievable talks. Yeah, it's a hub of culture for so many things, the Y. Yeah, if you were prime minister, president, author, actress, anybody doing anything important, you were interviewed at the 92nd Street Y. And so Susan said, you know, we love fashion and we've had one-offs, you know, but we'd love to create an ongoing series with fashion. You know, would you be interested in that? And I said, well, you know, I'm the one that's usually interviewed, but I, I could string together some intelligent questions. And we called, let's name it for fashion icons with Fern Malice. She said, do you think you can get some good people? I said, let me try. And in that first season, it was Norma Kamali was first because she's an old friend and she... I cut my teeth with her and then it was Calvin Klein and, and Tom Ford and Mark Jacobs and Michael Kors and Diane von Furstenberg and Vera Wang and Tommy. Yeah. And You've interviewed 61 fashion icons in the yeah. series, 11 year history. You've been doing it at the Y. So you guys, I just want to like, I want to just reflect for a second on firm because like, 
a ceiling crash at a fashion show and she created New York Fashion Week out of it. She had coffee, which, which is such a networking, such a New York City networking story. I knew somebody that lived in my building who lived in somebody's building. I mean, it's such a New York networking story. And over tea came up with this opportunity. And, you know, we, we, we can go through some of the interviews because we, we all need to read the book, number one, because we're going to get into the book. And I want to go through some of the interviews. But I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, the photos in the book, too, that are so truly unique. And, and during the pandemic that you were listening to your own interviews, those, you know, 11 years of interviews and the stories of successes and struggles and the power of reinvention is really what stood out to you. And the pandemic to you made sharing these stories more relevant than ever. And that is when you said everybody else was baking sourdough during the pandemic and I decided to write this book. So can you just tell us about this book? Maybe a couple of the tidbits of the types of stories that we would hear. Talk a little bit about the photography because I, for one, and like literally like the fashion student at, you know, a fashion week under the tents, panting, waiting for this to come out. Well, thank you. Um, well, the, the, this series, Fashion Icons with Fern Mouse, is, is, was a game changer in many ways, just the way the tents were. Um, because I'm, I'm as proud of these interviews as I am of the tents for 20 years. Because they're the definitive stories of, of creation and survival of all these extraordinary people that we all admire and look up to. Yeah. And I know because I've worked so closely with so many of them, you know, they're more than just a name on a label. You know, they really have stories and, and they've gone through hell and back again to survive and be successful. No, nobody's an overnight success. Yeah. Even when I spoke to Iris Apfel, she said, everybody thinks I'm an overnight success. It took me 75 years Iris Apfel, I mean, tell for people who maybe don't know who Iris Apfel is, can you just give one snippet of this woman who just turned 100 and what? 101 this summer. 101, that's what I thought. Just can we talk about Iris for a second? Well, Iris is the woman with the big black round glasses and bracelets from her wrist up to her elbows. (laughs) I don't know how she lifts her arms more jewelry and necklaces and things around her neck. She's the most eclectic, unbelievably stylish woman. Totally. Um, And she collected these things over many, many years of traveling with her husband when they had a a textile company, Old World Weavers. And she just accumulated all these things that, that there was a moment when the Metropolitan Museum, the Costume Institute, had a smaller exhibit was canceled, something went wrong and they had this space. They heard about Iris and they asked to do, you know, a thing with all her jewelry and her collections. So they started working on that and then went to her apartment to work with her and saw all the clothing and everything. And the thing mushroomed into a humongous show of this woman's style. And that launched a career in her, literally in her seventies to be, and uh, she's brand names for everything. She's designed China and glasses, eyeglasses Incredible. and and flatware and clothing. And, and she's uh, in ad campaigns for everything. She's, she just doesn't stop. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. At 101, she doesn't stop. She's like, reminds me of like, you know, the Deanna Vreeland who would say the, I must travel. You know, she just is just, you could just sit and look at her and she doesn't even have to speak. So, I mean, Valentino, we can talk, we yeah. talked about Tommy and yeah. Yeah, well, the first more. The, there's two books. Book one was out yeah. in 2015. And uh, that was mostly the Americans yeah. that, that I mentioned earlier. And including Bill Cunningham, which was the last interview we saved the book for. And he, the photographer from the New York Times with his blue jacket and bicycle, would ride around Love New York. The most beloved. I was photographed by Bill Cunningham and it made me feel so like a million dollars. Thin. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he was the most beloved personality in our industry. Yes. Beloved. And my story of getting him is really one of the best stories of all. If you yeah. we have time for that. For sure. You know, I mean, I I've known Bill my entire professional career. And I would always beg him when this series started, Bill, I, you have so much to say. Please, can I interview you with the wife? And he called everybody child. Oh, yes, child. Okay, you know, we'll work. Well, yes, we'll do. We'll. And then he'd dismiss me and go off and take pictures. And we'd always chat everywhere I'd see him. And this went on, this, this 
play of back and forth with an invitation forever. And then he told me one day, he said, you know, I sent you a note, a letter, why I won't do it. And I said, you did? Where did you send it? And he said, I don't remember. <laughs> the next time I saw him, he said, I think I sent it to the 92Y. So I said, okay. And I, I literally tracked it down from them. And I said, if there's an envelope from the New York Times to me, you know, get it to me. Find it. And he wrote this beautiful letter with that old scrolly handwriting. And he said, you know, he, ne he never saw the documentary that was done about him because he didn't like that. He didn't like that it was done. He did it as a favor to Arthur Sulzberger at the New York Times. And he said it made him into a star that he doesn't want to be. Right. Strangers would be, be talking to the him. Camera. Exactly. He Not doesn't want to be interrupted. He just wants to take his pictures. And he's the most humble, quiet man. You yeah. cannot buy this man a sandwich. You know, he just doesn't take anything from anybody. And so when he, you know, he explained it all to me and told me how much he loves me and he'd do anything for me. But, you know, he's just doesn't feel comfortable doing that. Spotlight. And I said, you know, the next time I saw him, I said, I got your letter and that's fine. I won't bother you anymore. Our loss, you know, it's too bad. And then like eight months later, I had just gotten off a plane from India at five o'clock in the morning because I'd working on Fashion Week in Mumbai for 10 years. Oh. And I was wearing this saffron chiffon half tan beautiful dress at, and it was the cfda awards that night at lincoln yeah. center so of course when they're in see bill and everybody else in the world and chatting away and he's standing with me at the cocktail party for quite some time chatting and by accident i had a vodka and tonic in my hand and he turned to write something of who he took just took a picture of and it knocked the drink on my dress and he was more catatonic besides himself. He said, in 40 years, I've never done this. Can I get you a new outfit? I said, Bill, I just came back from India with this. No. He said, can I get it cleaned? I said, Bill, it's vodka. It will dry. And I'm fan. I said, if it was red wine, I'd kill you. And, <laughs> and he's, and he was, just, he would not leave my side. I said, Bill, go do your work. I'll be fine. Go do. He goes, no, I feel so bad. I, I'm he said, I'll do anything. What can I do? And I looked at him and I said, will you do the why? And he said, yes. <laughs> Meet and me I said, at the Y, baby. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to call you first thing in the morning to make sure you remember that you said yes. You know, and, and that is it beautiful. was an epic interview. That is beautiful. So that's in Fashion Icons 1. Fashion Icons 2, which just came out last month, uh, last month, was launched at Nordstrom with a party that knocked your socks off. I mean, I they, know I was out of town. I was so sad to miss that party because they uh, turned the entire store into Fern Malice icons. Was, huge, huge was. signs. Nordstrom loves Fern Malice book covers. The front, That's the back. But well, you know why? Because what you've done as a fashion student, as someone who you know studied fashion and read every fashion history book that you could find, because I didn't go to college for it. I had to learn through the school of hard knocks to prove myself. What you, what you, uh, for, first of all, I want to say how I love my fashion friends because they always reminisce about stories and times with what they were wearing. And so I love that piece of it. And you're, what you've done is you've given us a, uh, a sealed sign and delivered memoir of that time in fashion of these people who literally made fashion history that we wore, that, that, that are memories of our lives. You know what I mean? These intimate stories of these people. And you sealed it in reference books for students of fashion and reference books for the future of fashion because yeah. it is changing. You know, I mean, the CFDA, we used to, I, as a designer, I used to get to go to that party you know, it's changed so much, you know, I mean, I can, I can only, what do you think about like the CFDA today and how hard it is to get a ticket? What do you think about the Met Ball today and how like the people that built the industry can't even get in and it's a lot of pop and circumstance. I mean, that's a piece of me is sad about it as much as I love the breadth that it shows the world of fashion. It gives people who have never had any interest in fashion, like, oh, there's a history to it, a chronicle of it. But talk to me a little bit about that part. Well, I'd rather talk to what you first asked me about yes. is some that's of these the interviews the in, the, in like book two that, that that's just out now and is available everywhere. You know, and those interviews were more European. We kind of crossed the Atlantic for that. So I have Valentino and Victoria Beckham, Rosita and Angela Massoni, Zandra Rhodes, and then people like Billy Porter, mm -hmm. Christian Siriano, Tim Gunn, Stan Herman. I'm in that book. So if people want to re really read my story, I was interviewed by Bevy Smith uh, and is included in, in that book. 
and Iris Apfel and Arthur Elgore, the photographer, who's yeah. just a, a darling. So they're all that in there. But the the stories really are about how did you become you? How did you build? What did you do? What was your home life like? Right. What was your what was your family like? What were your siblings? Um, you know, and then you know to the point of the photographs that supplement the di- the conversation. I say, give me this shoebox under your bed. You know, I want the pictures that nobody has seen. I don't want the collection pictures that are perfectly staged and styled. Right. You know, you can get those anywhere. I want pictures that describe who you are and where you came from. And that's well, I want people incredible. to understand that Arthur Elgort had the overwhelming task of distilling his 50-year career to what Fern said is what's under his bed of fashion photography. So you've got to see, you've got to get the book just for that alone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really. Yeah, and I mean, Valentino, who's in the book, has a picture of his first apartment in Rome that was in maid's quarters that he furnished from flea markets and stuff. And when I talked to him on the stage, he looked at me at one point and he said, you know, I never tell anybody as much as I tell you. He said, I think I tell you what underwear I'm wearing. And I said, (laughs) please, please do. You know, and, and Victoria Beckham, you know, she talked about how embarrassed she and her sister were to go to school and be dropped off by their father and his Rolls Royce. And so they would stop, you know, a few blocks away to walk, walk to school at the end. And her mother and uh, found for us when we were looking for pictures, an old photograph of her sitting on top of the Rolls Royce in the book. And, you know, we have a picture of her first date with David Beckham. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are well, our stories are what make the fabric of, you know, the fabric of us. And, and it's literally these fashion stories and these histories of these people, um, the histories of the people that you have dug deeply into to share is is so important. And when you're not digging into history, when you're not remembering what you wore or looking what's new on, on runways and fashion, like what else makes firm malice tick? Like, how do you find your freedoms in life? Oh, I think I'm still looking for them. <laughs> I mean, I'm happily talking to you today from my house in Southampton on a beautiful lake. And this is where I get recharged. Yeah. And this is where I spent the pandemic and work pretty much on, on fashion icons, too. You know, I have a spectacular little black cat named Dimples. Gives me great joy. Um, but, you know, I have a very enriched life with lots of friends and, and people around me and uh, family and grand nephews and nieces that I just fell over. They're so cute. You know, the days go by. I mean, uh, I don't know where this week went. I mean, everything is, uh, you know, since COVID, everything is has come back with a vengeance. Yeah. You know, it, it's an intensity right now back in New York that is a little bit frightening to me because, right. I mean, everybody's trying to make up for lost time. Yes, it's a you million know, miles an hour. Lost time, lost benefits, lost revenue for charities, everything. I'm, you can go to three things a night. Yeah. And, you know, and, and now driving around New York, if, you, if you're taking Ubers everywhere, you can go broke. Oh, no, I know. Inflation, you know, it's, everything it's is crazy, nuts. crazy, crazy, crazy time. So it's really important to find that time to just chill a little bit and then, you know, and take advantage of the beautiful weather or the sun or the flowers in the garden. Yeah. You know, I mean, I store and re-energize in nature and away from technology and away from the troubles and, you know, and, and put your head in a good book, right. And read about history and get to know people and their stories. Because to me, it's, there's no, that's my favorite stuff to, to read and listen to, you know what well, I mean? And well, so. I hear wonderful comments about people who, who've read my books because the interviews have, have been very inspiring to a lot of people. Yes. You know, I remember talking to Mark Jacobs on the stage and, you know, and we got to the point where he was talking about his third bankruptcy, yeah. you know, and I looked at the audience and I said, did you hear what he just said? This is the third time the company went bankrupt and yet they, restarted again and that passion to do what they have to do and i said did you still did you still work with the same lawyer and he (laughs) said yep (laughs) grow together okay it's only a mistake if you make it twice i hope it wasn't the same lawyer three times (laughs) but mark jacobs is a story We all have skin knees and, you know, it's nice to read about other people's uh, rise to success, you know, and, and I look forward to reading about yours. I know quite a bit about it, but Bevy Smith and I came up in the business together. And so it's really fun that she interviewed you and I'm really excited. 
Bernard, if I guess, yeah, go ahead. Read about Leonard Lauder. He was one of my favorite interviews. Leonard Lauder. And uh, talk about an icon. Yes. You know, I mean, how that business got built, you know, with his mom, talk about women leadership. She was, she was a dynamo. And, you know, and he grew up with her and helped really turn that business into this multi-billion dollar leading company and beauty company in the world. Yeah. Female inspired male run for a little while and then passed down to generations of the family. And he always says, don't ever make an important business decision without a woman at the table. Yes, honey. I agree with that. Ching, ching, ching. A diverse table we always know is the best table to sit at. And I'm glad to see the fashion industry going through its metamorphoses and changes. And I'm certainly glad to have a history that we've had. And I'm so happy to have lived in the fashion time that I lived and I got to do it with you. And you were such an inspiration to me. And I'm so, so thankful that you came on the show to share your book with us. And for those people who have not um, read the first book and it wanted, can find out where to get the books, let us know where to get the books and where they can follow you if they don't already do Fern. Well, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Fern Malice and you'll, you'll say, really? How could she be doing all these things? I mean, it's crazy. And that's the best way to find out about things that are happening. My, when, the new, when the new talks come up at the Y, we do it all on social media to Perfect. let people know how to get tickets. But the books are available at North. Book two is available at Nordstrom. And right now at Nordstrom, you can buy the boxed set of one and two, we reissued book one and book two with beautiful illustrations from Ruben, this uh, artist that uh, unbelievable. And in the book one, we added a new paragraph about what's happened since that first book came out, their lives. So that's a box set and it's exclusive to them, but it, they're not gonna be there forever. But book two, you can buy at Rizzoli on Amazon. Yeah. I know both book one and two are available at the Met Museum at the gift shop, at the books shop at the museum. Yeah, and that's, okay. you know, and probably at all fine bookstores, whichever ones are still left. You know, well, it's definitely going to be. I, I like that set idea because, you know, I love a good coffee table book, and that's one that belongs in my house. I thank you so much for your time, Fern. Thank you to my guest, Fern Malice. This is Heather Thompson, and this is In My Heart. We'll be back at you next week with a new episode, so be sure to tune in. Thank you so much. Thank you, honey. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.